Well, uh, it's good for me to be back. I, uh, you know, if you're new around here, you're thinking, well, first, I don't even know who this guy is, and second, where was he? Um, I am Pastor Doug, and normally I stand up here and preach on Sundays, but the last three weeks, I have been traveling the globe. I literally flew nine times in 16 days, and the average length of my flight was just under 10 hours. So I have seen the world in the last two and a half weeks, and um, it is so good to be back. And it's just good to be here with my church family, worshiping with you guys. God did amazing things on my trip. I'm going to tell you guys more about that next week. In fact, you're going to get a chance next Sunday to hear from a lot of the missionaries who have been out in the field this summer. We're all returning back now. You're going to get reports on what was going on, and so you don't want to miss that. I won't bore you with that today since we're going to talk about it tomorrow. But I just want to say I'm glad to be back. And uh, and uh, I just want to also, since Dave Denstead is not here, I, I, I'll go ahead and say something nice about him. <laughs> um, so, you, know, you don't want him to get a big head and all that kind of stuff. Don't record this part, okay? I don't want him to hear this, but... Um, but here's the deal. Uh, for me to be gone and, and just say to somebody, hey, listen, I need you to preach for three straight weeks. Um, if you're not a preacher, you don't understand what that involves, but that is a huge thing that he did. And, and for me to come back and to hear from so many people how blessed they were by the word of God as Dave taught, it was so encouraging to me. So praise God for Dave and the others who, uh, who just sort of filled in for me while I was gone. Um, I'm really thankful for them, and I'm really, really glad to be back, okay? So um, let me begin, as we get back into the Word of God, by telling you about three people. There are, there are three specific people who, uh, for me, hold, they, they share a place, the same place in my heart. Um, it's a unique place. Nobody else is there. It's a, it's a place that is set aside for three specific people who mean the world to me. I have a picture of them. Uh, that's them. So uh, they're my kids. And uh, some of you are looking going, oh, that's who those people are. Well, they don't look like that anymore. They look like older versions of that. But that is a, that's eight years ago. Uh, we were in the mission field together, uh, all four of us, which was a really fun thing for a dad to go and do missions work with his kids. Um, but, but that's Lisa on the right, and Kim to her right, and me in the middle, and Garrett to my right. Um, well, left, whatever. You know what I'm saying. You're, you're facing the other way. Anyways, um, I, uh, those should know what the way to say this. I love them with every fiber of my being. I love them in ways I can't imagine loving another human being. I, I have a relationship with those three people, each one individually and also together as a group, that I treasure more than anything that I have in all of the world. If you gave me all the tea in China and all the diamonds in Africa, I would not trade it for those three people. They mean everything to me. And I have an incredible incredible blessing to be called their dad. And it's such a joy for me just to be in relationship with them. And I know parents get talking about their kids and you're like, yeah, yeah, everybody loves their kids, go on. But, but I, I want you to understand this and, and really to sort of set this up because um, it's such a joy now that my children are all adults to, to have 
a relationship with them as grown people. And, and to love them every bit as much today as I did when they were infants. And, and just to see the way those relationships have come around. And the interesting thing is that the three kids are so different from one another. They're, they're, they're not alike, you know? And you go, wow, how did they come from the same DNA? These three kids, they, they, they look different, they act different, they have different tastes, different personalities. Every, so many things are different about them, and yet there are certain things where the common thing that I hear about my kids is somebody will tell me this all the time, oh, he reminds me so much of you. Um, or, oh, she's just like her father. Yeah, we're just, Christy and I were just talking about one of our kids last night, and, and she said, that kid is your kid. <laughs> and I, I'm going to assume she meant that as a compliment. Um, but, but there are certain ways in which they would hate to admit this, but there are certain ways in which they just are becoming like me. And people see it. Like Lisa, the oldest one, has always been this person who is just fascinated with learning. She loves ideas. And she loves learning. She taught herself to read when she was two, and she hasn't put books down ever since. She just, she just devours ideas and thoughts. She loves to discuss philosophy. She loves to discuss theology. She loves to read big, thick books with no pictures in them, right? And, and that's just her, and that's me. If you were to go into my office, you would see literally a couple thousand books on the shelves. And that doesn't count all the digital books that I have on my iPad now. Um, I love books. I love ideas. I love philosophy. I love learning. I love thinking deeply about things and not just sort of taking the status quo idea of something, but really grappling with it. And when I want to do that, Lisa's the one I want to be with because she just does that. And, and she got that from me. And... Um, when I think about Kim, and I just, Kim has this sparkling personality, always has, always when she was this tall, she'd walk into a room and become the center of attention. She, she just is comfortable with people. She just loves being with people. You know, right now, I'm standing up in front of a bunch of people, some of whom are strangers to me, and I'm not the least bit nervous. I'm completely comfortable. How, raise your hand if you would be uncomfortable doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah, like almost everybody, right? And, and yet, Kim's just like me. She would just as soon be up on a stage with a microphone in her hand as anywhere else. And, and I see myself in her. And when I look at my son, Garrett, it's funny. The, I think I was talking about this in a recent sermon, so forgive me if I repeat myself. But, um, but there was a picture posted on social media recently, a picture of me when I was about 22, 23 years old. And... Um, Everybody started um, writing in, oh my gosh, Garrett looks exactly like you. He looks exactly like you. And it's so funny because I laugh and I tell him, you poor kid. <laughs> I go, he's so good looking, right? And I go, I used to be good looking too. <laughs> Those days are so far gone. I just like a distant memory. I really used to be good looking. I go, you better pray, kid, because I'm telling you, it is downhill from here. You better find yourself a wife now, because <laughs> it is not getting better for you. And, and he looks like me. And, and the other thing about Garrett is he has the 
stupidest sense of humor. Like, he tells the dumbest jokes and then laughs till he cries. And what's funny is there'll be a room of 10 people, Garrett and me and eight other people, and he'll say something that he thinks is funny, and he and I will be holding our guts laughing, and everybody else is going, what are they laughing at? But somehow, I think he got that from his mother probably, but, um, but, but somehow he got my sense of humor. And, um, and when I look at them, even the adult version of each of my kids, I see a bit of myself. And I see some of my bad traits in them too. And I won't, I won't tell you about those because those are hidden. Nobody knows about those. But, um, and I also see my wife in them. And... And I, I promise you, all of those are good traits, right? <laughs> Only good traits from her. But, but it's amazing when you look at them and go, wow, they are their parents' kids. And, and I tell you all of that to lay the foundation for today's passage. Because in today's passage, God is going to tell us that he is our father and we are his children and he's then going to say, therefore, you should remind people of me. And that's natural. That's normal. It is normal and natural and commonplace for children to take on the traits of their parents. And so let this be a warning to some of us as parents, especially if you still have young kids at home. Let this be a warning to you. They are going to watch the way you and your spouse interact. And that's how they're likely to interact with their spouse one day. So pay attention. They're going to see how you deal with crises, and that's how they're likely to deal with crises one day because they are learning from you. It's amazing. We tell them stuff, do this and don't do that and believe this and don't believe that, but it's what we do that they're really watching, and it's rubbing off on them. It's normal. It's natural. That's what happens. Children grow up to look like their parents, and that's a good thing. But as we go into Ephesians chapter 5, in fact, if, you're, if you brought a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we've been working through the book of Ephesians now for several months, and we took a break uh, the last three weeks. It's been a month since I was in this pulpit. We took a break the last three weeks as Dave um, taught about uh, a life that thrives. And now we're coming back to our study of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So... Take a, take a minute and find Ephesians chapter 5 in your New Testament. And while you're looking, let me just sort of bring you back up to speed. Let me recap. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, basically, if you stick them all together, basically, here's what they say. You are someone special in Christ. They tell us who we are in Christ. That, that we, were, we were once sinners, we were once helpless, we were once lost, and that we had nothing to offer to God, but by his grace and by his love, he looked upon us and said, I choose to place my love on this one. And he placed his love on us, and he adopted us as children. And he made us part of the family of God. And so um, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians basically tells us who we are in Christ, which is so helpful, you guys, because the world is constantly attacking our notion of who we are. The world is constantly trying to tell us you should be this or you should be that. And if you're not enough of this or you don't look enough like that, then somehow you're, you're failing. Somehow you're falling behind. But in Ephesians 1 through 3, he says, let me tell you what matters. You have the love of God. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, 
um, then you have been adopted by Christ. And you have become his child. And that's what it tells us in chapters 1 through 3. But then in chapter 4, it gets into this very intensely practical stuff. And it starts talking to us about how we should walk. And I, I love this analogy of walking. Paul uses this analogy over and over again to describe the Christian life. He says, you're going to be walking. And he tells us over and over again to walk the worthy walk. And that's really how chapter 4 began. He said, you're going to be walking with God. He's trying to get our mind off of the theoretical and onto the practical. And he's saying, you're actually walking with him. You're actually living with him. And, and walking with God is something we do. So all throughout scripture, it tells us in one way or another to walk the worthy walk. It never says sit the worthy sit. It never says nap the worthy nap. It doesn't say that. It says walk the worthy walk, implying that the, the picture of what it is to be in a relationship with God is to live a transformed life. And so he starts giving us that in chapter 4 and really digging in and challenging us to walk differently because of who we are in Christ. And, and chapter 5 begins with the word therefore, which he does all the time in this book. And every time we see the word therefore, we always go back to the immediate context because we want to know what he's referring to so we understand what he's about to say. So before we start reading chapter 5, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 30. Hopefully everybody's there by now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He's speaking to Christians here. And he's saying, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus then one of the things that is true about you is that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is to say that God himself has, has woven his life together with yours. And, and let me try to give us a picture of this. It, it's not as though we are divine. The scripture does not teach that we are divine. God alone is divine. And yet, it does teach that we become one with God in the person of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit literally takes resonance in our lives and the two become one. Just like when a husband and wife come together and now they become a family and then scripture says, what God has brought together, let no man separate. In that same sense, God has come together with us. Once you are a follower of Jesus, you can't undo that, right? It's, it's like if you, took, um, if you took, say, salt, a, a pound of salt and a pound of sugar, and you poured them together into a big jar and you shook up the jar, it would be half salt and half sugar. Good luck separating them out again, right? That's what he's saying when he's saying that the Holy Spirit sealed us. He, he's actually like wrapped himself around us. He's made himself one with us. To be a Christian is to be defined by our relationship with God, and everything else becomes secondary to that. So he's saying, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, therefore, there are some things that have to change in your life, and he gives an example in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4. He says, for instance, all that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and malice and all that stuff that you've been storing up in your heart, all that, all that um, sour, bitter feeling that you have, there's no place for that in your life. 
He actually tells us we're supposed to put that stuff away. And we go, but wait a second, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't know what I've had to put up with. Listen, I've been abused. People have not treated me right, and, and I'm not about to let that go. I'm going to just hold on to I am bitter because of what they have done, not because I want to be bitter. And I say to you, according to the scripture, you have a choice. Now listen, let me be clear. I am not implying here that any kind of um, pain that you have been through, any kind of abuse that you have been through, any kind of brokenness that you have been through, I do not want to minimize that. I don't want to say that it means nothing. But here's what I do want to say. It also doesn't mean everything. Right? You are not defined by the pain that you have been through or the scars that you bear because of that pain. God says, in Christ, you now have the ability to walk separate from all of that. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be malicious. And he calls you to put that stuff off. And then he says in verse 32, and replace it with things like kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Now, man, some of us hear that and we go, listen, I was with you until you said forgiveness. Because I'm telling you, you know, I did not deserve what happened to me. And I'm not about to forgive that guy who did that to me. Well, who are you hurting? This lack of forgiveness, what, what positive thing is it accomplishing? So you, you, you decide that because something has happened to me, I'm going to stay in this cage forever. And I'm going to live a limited life because somebody else hurt me once. And so what I'm doing is essentially taking that jerk who mistreated me and I'm giving them the keys to my life from here on. And I'm saying, you go ahead and keep ruling my life from the past. He says, you can forgive. You go, well, I, I, you know what? I'm not doing it. It's not fair. It's not fair. Why should I have to forgive? And, and, and it's like Paul reads our minds because he says... Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We sang about it today, the cross. At the cross, I surrender my life. So let's just ask yourself this question. Is it fair that Jesus bled and died so that you could be set free from your sin? It's not fair. If what you want is fair, you're going to have to live outside the grace of God. He forgave you. And he calls us to forgive others in the same way. Now, I'm getting all preachy, and this isn't even my, my subject, so let me, let me hurry on to chapter 5, because it begins with, therefore, in light of having been sealed by the Holy Spirit and now being transformed into a different kind of person who is not only called to live differently, but enabled to live differently, no longer under the yoke of slavery to sin, because you are that, I am challenging you, he says, to actually do something different. Look at verse chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Remember, it is normal and natural for children to imitate their parents. And so he tells us, God is your father. Imitate him as beloved children. 
And, and sometimes we make this mistake when we're reading our Bibles. We think, oh, that certain words are really important and other words are just sort of fluff that are around them. Don't skip this. He calls us children. And not just children, beloved children. I went on and on to the point where some of you are ready to get up and walk out at the beginning of my sermon about how great my kids are, how much I love them, what they mean to me. That's what he's talking about, beloved children. That's what God calls us, beloved children. How how great is it that the God of the universe dearly loves you? Not just people in general, but you. Knowing everything there is to know about you, knowing everything there is to know about me, that the God of the universe chooses to love me dearly. It says beloved. In some other translations, it says dearly loved children. I like that. He loves us dearly. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what we're talking about. He calls us his children. And we shouldn't fly past that. And then he tells us in verse 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So not only are we children of God, but as children of God, we should be imitating him. And how are we supposed to imitate him? In love. We're supposed to look at how God loves, and we're supposed to actually love others in the same way. Now, it's a high calling. I'll grant you that. In fact, all of us are falling short of this right now, right? Anybody disagree? We're all falling short of this. It's an extremely high calling. But let not that be an excuse for us, because it's a command. And he's speaking to Christians here. Again, if you're, if you're here today and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not sure about all this claims of, of the Bible and all that, I'm just glad you're here. You, you need to listen and hear what God is saying and, and, and evaluate his word and decide whether he's calling you to be a follower of Christ. But, but it's to followers of Christ that he is writing this. And he is saying, you, my beloved children, you need to walk in love. You need to remind people of your heavenly father by the way that you love. And so that leads us to ask an important question. If we're supposed to love like God loves, what does God's love look like? Now, granted, we could stay here all month and I could talk about the love of God and we would still not fully explain it, right? It's infinite, it is beyond us, it's like nothing else that we've ever seen. But he does describe himself and his love to us in scripture to give us at least a glimpse of what he looks like and what his love looks like. And I want to just hit on three things today just to just keep this succinct. So the first thing I want us to realize about God's love is that God always loves first. He always loves first. We are just the opposite. It's just natural and normal. Think about this. If you've ever been like in a dating relationship and it's starting to get serious and it's getting more serious and you're like, this could really be the one. Then there comes a point. I don't know how women think about this, but now I'm going to just speak from a guy's perspective. So you're getting to this place. You're like, I think I love this girl. I think, I think she's, I'm in love with this girl. Then the question becomes, what do I do? Do I tell her? And if I tell her, because you know, women, they just, they're waiting to hear those words, right? 
And if I tell her, and I finally get to the place, and I'm there, and it's romantic, and I'm holding her hand, I'm looking in her eyes, and I go, I love you. And what if she goes, oh, that's nice. <laughs> oh, devastation, right? I, I don't want to be the first one to put myself out there because what if it's not returned, right? It's dangerous to love someone when you don't know if they love you, right? And so, and so when we think about God's love, he loves us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says this, and we love because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. It would be impossible for us to love like God if it wasn't for the fact that he loved us first. And, and this is so important for us to understand. He did not insist that we get our act together and then he would love us. He did not wait for us to fix all the broken stuff in our lives and then go, oh, now you're beautiful. Of course I love you. He set his love on us. I want to show you this. Go to Romans chapter 5. If you're in Ephesians, you're just going to go back several pages to the left. And, and before 1 Corinthians, you come to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 5. And I want you to see, this is a familiar passage to some of us, but it's so profound. I want us to see it together. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, I want you to circle that word in your Bibles. Once, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Christ die for? Did he die for godly folks? No. Guess what? There are no godly folks. There are no people who are sinless. Every one of us is in the same situation. He looked upon us in our sin, in our ungodliness, in our helplessness. He didn't, he didn't help us because we had something to offer him. Just picture you're, you're driving out on a deserted road. There's hardly anybody out there. It's late at night. You're on your way across country, and... and you see this car by the side of the road. And, and there's a flat tire. There's a lady holding the baby, standing out behind the car, tears rolling down her cheeks, one o'clock in the morning, middle of the desert. Now you have a decision. Am I going to stop and help her? And of course, the way that you decide is, well, I wonder how much money she has. I wonder if she'll pay me. Maybe if she'll give me a thousand bucks, then I'll stop her and, and help her. If that's who you are, I don't like you. <laughs> Why would we stop and help somebody? If we're loving like God is loving, we stop and help not because they have something to offer us, but because they need the help, right? He set his love on helpless people. I hope that encourages you. Because some of us are trying like crazy to live godly lives and we keep stumbling and stumbling and stumbling and we just want to throw our heads in the air and go, I'm just hopeless, I'm helpless, I can't do this. Great, you're exactly who God loves. He set his love on us. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. We're, we, we're supposed to see the love of God, and we're supposed to imitate it. It's demonstrated, according to verse 8, in Christ, who while we were yet sinners, died for us. You could work the rest of your life trying to clean up your act, and you'll never be clean enough for God. If he did not shed his blood for people who could not save themselves, we would all be helpless and hopeless. We would have no hope of spiritual life. But he loves first. God has a higher kind of love. And we're told to imitate that love. So let me just ask you to get real practical in your own mind and ask yourself, who is there in my life who in all honesty, I have to admit, is just unlovely? I just, I look at this person, and I'm like, I just don't see any redeeming quality in this person. This, and, and I work with him every day. I got to go to work. He's in the next cubicle, and he's such a jerk. And, and, and there's just, he adds nothing to my life except grief. He just makes my life more difficult. Maybe it's not somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody in your home. The relationship is so stressed that you're like, this person is so unlovely so unattractive, there's just no way I could muster up love for this person. The scripture says that we're to imitate the love of God, and one of the things we know about his love is he loves first. He doesn't wait for us to get lovely before he loves us. In fact, all of our loveliness is based upon the fact that he loves us. He doesn't wait for us to be lovely so he can love us. He loves us, and that's what makes us lovely. Amen? Does that make sense? So that's, you know, high calling, right? That's what he's commanding us to do. We are to be imitators of God in the way that he loves. And you know what? New parents understand this. If, if, you, if you've ever been a parent and you, you, you have this infant, right? You bring home this child. I was joking about this today with, uh, with the Sandwalds. They have... They have a little baby in their house, and, and, and you know what he does? It's the cutest little thing you've ever seen, right? You know what he does? He's a 15-pound bag of flesh, and what he does is poop, puke, and scream. That's what he does. <laughs> that is what that kid contributes to the life of his family. Like, he brings nothing to the table. They don't sleep anymore. They can't spend their money on themselves anymore. They don't get to do what they want to do. Their calendar is not their own. Every time Rachel gets dressed and ready to go, he pukes on her and she's got to start all over again. This, I raised three kids, I'm telling you, right? Is that not true? When they're little like that, they bring nothing to the table and you love them with every ounce of your being. What is that? How does that happen? When we love our infant children who do nothing but take and don't give, we're starting to imitate the love of God. He loves first. Second thing I want to tell you about God's love is that he loves unconditionally. Now, if you've been around church in your life, you've already heard this. God's love is unconditional. There's a Greek word for this, agape. It's, it's such a well-known Greek word that it's almost a part of the English language now. And, and, and agape, of course, is that Greek word for love that only describes God's love for us. It's completely selfless. It's completely perfect. It's completely unconditional. 
And we're just shocked by the concept of unconditional love because all of the love or so-called love that we see in our world is predicated on something. It's either I love you because, because you offer this or because you did that or whatever, or I will love you if, if you meet my needs, if you're attractive to me, I will love you when, when you behave in certain ways, you can have my love, but boy, you mess up and I'm going to stop loving you, right? We hear about people who fall in and out of love. Oh, I just fell in love with this lady and it was just the greatest thing. And she was just the center of my universe. And I spent about three weeks getting to know her and I went, man, she's kind of a jerk in a lot of ways. And I just fell out of love. That's how we talk about love in our culture. That's not what God's talking about when he talks about love. He's talking about a love that is not conditioned upon anything except his nature to love. He loves because he's God. And you don't see that. You don't even see anything close to it very often. I'll be honest with you. The closest I've ever seen to it is, is when, when my son was born. He was the second born. So we had, a, we had a daughter that was not quite two, she's like a year and a half, and Garrett comes along. So now we have a year and a half and a brand newborn in the house. And so, you know, a year and a half old toddler takes, needs tons of attention, right? But then a new baby needs tons of attention. And I, I remember watching my wife sort of grapple with this. Man, she did great. First child, she did great. She was just like, she was mom of the year. It was just amazing, right? I was just like, wow, what a great mom she is. Second child came, she was outnumbered. That was the deal. She was just outnumbered. Like, man, I only have two hands, and there's, there's, there's two kids, and they're all needing different things. And I remember Garrett had the hardest time uh, feeding when he was just, when we brought him home from the hospital, he couldn't nurse, and he didn't understand how all that worked, and, and he was losing weight, and Christy's feeling guilty, and she's feeling terrible, and she's staying up all night trying to feed this kid. Meanwhile, the other kid's waking up in the middle of the night needing to be comforted and changed and taken care of. And, you know, I'm asleep. <laughs> Just kidding. Sometimes I helped. <laughs> but I remember watching her, and, I, and I'm telling you, she was struggling. She was struggling. And I, I remember just watching her patiently love these two kids. It was amazing. It was amazing to me. I'm telling you, I fell more in love with God because I got to watch my wife demonstrate what it is to love unconditionally. Now, I guarantee you, if you asked her, she would go, hey, he, <laughs> he's making it sound better than it was. It wasn't unconditional. There were times I thought about flushing him down the toilet, I'm <laughs> right? She'd probably tell you that. So, so even that, this incredible picture that I got to see of my wife loving that way, it's just like a foggy picture of God's love. It's not even close. And yet, God calls us to love like him. To love unconditionally. Man, that's a high calling. Here's the thing. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and look again at verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I have, I have good news and bad news for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, good news and bad news. Let me start with the bad news. He commands you to love like this. 
He expects you to do it. It's what he has commanded you to do. And the bar is so high. But we can't get around it. He's commanding us to do it. And now the good news. The same God who commands you to love like this also empowers you to love like this. You can't do it on your own. There's no way, there's no human being in their own strength and their own power, their own uh, goodness would love like this. But God can do it through you. He empowers you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are one with God. He empowers you to do the things he commands you to do. And so some of you right now are sitting here going, you know, there's like a name pounding in your head of someone you just do not want to love, someone you do not want to forgive, someone you do not want to be kind-hearted toward, and you feel convicted, and you're just like struggling right now because God's put a name in your head. And I just want to tell you, that is a high calling. God will do it through you. He's not asking you to strengthen yourself to do it. What he's saying is, Surrender to me, and I will do it through you. God has the power to do the things that he's called us to do. And when we look at that, we don't have much room for excuses. I I want you to walk out of here today going, I'm actually going to have to change the way I'm dealing with certain relationships in my life. And then falling at God's feet and asking him to help. Third thing I want to point out as we wrap this up. I want to point this out about God's love God's love always leads him to action. For God, love is a verb. His love does stuff. Remember we said John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's a verb. He gave his only begotten son. That's a pretty radical thing to do because of your love. His love leads him to do stuff, right? We saw in um, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a verb. He did it for us. His love insisted that he do it. Now, I want you to turn to Philippians. If you're in Ephesians, just turn like two pages to the right. You'll be in Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let's look really quickly at this. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, imitating God. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself. There's a verb. Bondservant. There's somebody who does something. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's a verb. A verb, becoming obedient, that's a verb, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death, he died. We're to have this attitude, which was also in Christ, who laid his life down. And by the way, I don't know how much we pay attention to the words that we sing on Sunday mornings, but this morning we sang these words, at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life, Right? I lay my life down. And he calls us to that same kind of thing. This kind of love is not a love that just sits back and either feels warm feelings or doesn't. This is a kind of love that blesses people whether you feel warm feelings or not. Here's a simple way to think about biblical love. You're going to write this down. Love is meeting needs. 
In the simplest terms, as I look at Scripture, that's what I keep seeing. Love is meeting needs. It's always an action word. It's always a verb. It's always about meeting needs. Love sees the needs in people and meets them. Turn your Bibles to Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 25, near the end of the book. Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 31. This is Jesus speaking, and he's talking about when he comes back to judge the earth. And here's what he says. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats to the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And he goes on and says, and then he'll say to the goats, you didn't visit me in prison. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't give me something to drink when I was thirsty. And he will cast them into outer darkness. And they too will say, but Lord, when? And he will say, whenever you didn't do it to the least of my brethren, you didn't do it to me. You see how Jesus ties together love and doing? How he ties together love and meeting needs? And he's called us really to two things. Love God, love people. That's the great commandment. Love God, love people. And if love is meeting needs, we see how to love people. It's by feeding the hungry and dressing the naked and visiting the prisoners and the sick. We see all of that, meeting people's needs. But God has no needs. How do we love God? He says, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That's how you love God. You love God by loving who God loves. And he says, if you're going to imitate me, you better get serious about the doing part of it. Jesus is our example. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. He said, whatever you have seen me doing, I want you to love in the same way. And in Ephesians 5, 2, he tells us how to do it. Because to love like God, too much, right? He goes, no, just imitate Jesus. Just imitate Jesus. But I'm going to make it super duper simple for you. It's a two-step process. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I know, I've been talking for 45 minutes. It comes down to two things. I should have just rushed ahead. It comes down to two things. Number one, watch what Jesus does. Number two, do what he does. That's it. Watch and do. If you want to actually get into this picture of the abundant life that Ephesians is describing for us, he says how to do it. Watch Jesus and do what he does. 
And guys, I want to just get really, really practical because um, some of us, we, we say that we love, but we don't even watch Jesus. You know, most of us have got one of these books at home. Some of us have got 10 or 12, and they're gathering dust on our shelves. But if you read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, you're going to get to watch Jesus love people. And I'm telling you, you won't learn to do it any other way. There's nobody else in the world you can watch and learn to love like Jesus. You have to watch Jesus. And guys, some of us, the only dose of scripture we ever get is when I stand up here on Sunday mornings and tell you something. Pick up your Bibles. Watch Jesus. Get to know him and see what he does. You know what? Tomorrow, actually this afternoon, VBS begins, right? And we are going to be exhausted by the end of the week. But God has called us to love like Jesus does. Where are you going to get that power? Here's what I'm going to tell you. Those of you that are working VBS, this is just for you. Listen closely. You're going to be so busy this week. You're going to be so tired. You're going to get this temptation. When it comes, I want you to recognize and go, Pastor Doug said this would happen. Here's your temptation. Take an extra half an hour of sleep and don't get up and spend time with God in the morning. That's the temptation. Do it on your own strength. You need sleep more than you need Jesus. It's alive from the pit of hell. Get your butt out of bed and spend time with Jesus. Because if you're not watching him, you're not going to do what he does. He does it through you. He didn't recruit us to be VBS workers because we have so much power. He wants to do something through us. And the same is true if you're not coming to VBS tomorrow, but you're going back to work. And you're going to sit next to that knucklehead in the next cubicle that you have so much trouble loving. And he says, watch Jesus and do what he does. You may find yourself taking that guy to lunch this week. And when you do, you might just discover ways that you can love like Jesus and his life will be changed forever. Maybe there's somebody in your home that you're going to have a conflict this week. You got to ask yourself, am I going to stand for my rights? Am I going to grasp my right to have whatever I want? Or am I going to love someone even while they're being unlovely? Watch Jesus and do what he does. And when you do, people will see you and they'll be reminded of him. Because that's the point. Let's stand and pray together. Father, as we go from this place, having heard from your word, we have been given a glimpse, just a glimpse of your love, but even the glimpse that we've seen is so challenging to us. Father, in the flesh, we cannot do it. I pray, Father, that by your spirit who has sealed us and made us your children, you will not only challenge us to live this way, but empower us to do it. Father, I pray that there will be success stories Monday through Saturday of, of people who just went, wow, God empowered me to love and it changed someone's life. God, make us the lights that you want us to be so that people will see us and be directed to you. Whether we're working with a, a seven-year-old at VBS, or whether we're working with a difficult boss in the workplace, or whether we're struggling in our marriages or 
um, in our relationships with our children, our parents, our friends. Let us be saturated with your love, Lord Jesus, so that when someone bumps us, it'll be your love that spills on them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.